0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV.
1: Hi, Ruth. Hi, Bob. How are you? Good, yeah, as good as you can be in the middle of in a in the middle pandemic. of
0: a pandemic that will end end civilization as we know it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Apart from that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that's the the pandemic is is has some connection to what we're we're going to talk about. We didn't plan it this way. Let me let me introduce us and explain. I'm Robert Wright. This is the right show available in both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Ruth Whitman, uh, author of the book, America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. Um, and, you know, being in the middle of a uh, pandemic is is uh, relevant both to anxiety and happiness. Uh, and so I, I actually do want to get around to talking about that. Uh, before this is over but uh maybe we should uh first uh talk about the book a little what you're up to and, and add by the way that you're a journalist you've written for new york times the guardian a lot of places you were uh, i guess a broadcast journalist you made documentaries for the bbc
1: i did yeah yeah
0: but but then you came to america which led to this book yes and and um And in fact, you know, it's funny. I mean, in a way, I think the title sells the book short in the sense that to some extent, it's kind of a critique of American culture more broadly. Uh, But it certainly is uh, a critique of the whole kind of self-help, self-help business and self-improvement obsession that you find to be more pronounced in America than in Britain. But, but, But why don't you start by telling us why you came to America and what, some of your first impressions of America were because cause I, I gather the book kind of starts with you having culture shock in a sense.
1: Yeah. So um, we moved to America. It's just a little over eight years ago now. And uh, we came here for my husband's work. I didn't know a single soul. And we had a one year old baby. And we were living. So we live in Berkeley, California, which is kind of, you know, in some ways a quite unrepresentative un- place in America, but in other ways, I think it's <laughs> yes, definitely kind of a, I, but- right. But I think in other ways, it's a kind of heightened examples of of some trends that you see kind of across the board. Um, so you kind of, it's like a bit of a hothouse for certain things that, um, that you can experience more broadly. And yeah, when we first moved here, I experienced really quite extreme culture shock. I mean, I expected the two places to be broadly similar, but, um, And one of the things that really kind of stood out for me was just this kind of national obsession with the idea of happiness, you know, with finding happiness. And it would just come up in conversation all over the place. You know, I'd be having a very, very casual, low key bit of small talk with somebody in the grocery store or in the park, you know, with my son or whatever. And they would start kind of almost evangelizing about the different ways and different paths that they were finding towards towards happiness or contentment or well being, And people saw this as this really, really intense personal journey. And, you know, in the UK, I think there just isn't that much of an emphasis on that kind of self development in a way. And I think it is just something that's very, very deep in the American psyche.
0: Yeah, I guess. So do you have a theory as to whether it's been that way, like forever or, um, cause I was trying, your book made me reflect on this question. Um,
1: I do I mean I think forever I mean nothing's forever but I mean I think it's very much in the founding principles of this country isn't it Mm. I mean you know the pursuit of happiness it's right there in the very founding documents of the nation and I think no other nation as far as I know has had that in such an explicit way in its kind of legal, ethical, um, cultural framework as America has. So I think, you know, and I think people do here see it as their right to kind of go and actively go looking for a happy life. And I think that has a lot of huge advantages. And I think it also comes with a lot of stress.
0: But it certainly, I don't think it used to be as self-conscious as it is. It's hard to say because I have my own form of cultural shock. I mean, I was kind of, my parents were from West Texas farm families. And honestly, uh, I, Felt the sense of affinity with your description of the British attitude. Right. You know, it's like it's like in West Tech. And uh, as I recall, you would say, how are you doing to somebody? And they say, oh, getting by, you know, and, and, it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's like on a good day. And then yes. I came to the East Coast for college and realized that you're you're supposed to always say you're doing well, even if you're not.
1: Right. Well, I think there's there's two kind of trends in America. I mean, one that I've noticed here is that how are you is actually a question. It's like an actual question that people expect an actual answer to, certainly in California. So people will really huh. explore like what huh. they're feeling and what they're going through. And that's kind of that was interesting because in the UK, it sounds like, you know, the West Texas in that respect, at least, which is just, you know, you know, fine, not bad. You know, not bad is kind of the best you can aim for, really. That's that's the pinnacle. But um and also yes there's this absolute expectation of positivity here i think the culture really really values this kind of positive attitude positive yeah
0: that's i guess in a way i was conflating two things i mean um i was i was thinking of a kind of a chirpiness uh you know a kind Mm -hmm. of uh just a upbeatness that i that i think maybe is a little truer of kind of maybe it's truer of upper class america because you're you know if you're the ruling class you want to say everything's great the way it is maybe, but, uh, but that's not exactly the same as certainly not exactly the same as what you're describing in the book, which is, uh, kind of the opposite of always asserting that you're happy. It's, it's always examining the question and whether or trying or not to change the yeah. answer. Yeah. yeah,
1: so it's kind of this tension between the two. It's really interesting that you've pointed that out because I think there is this like massive emphasis, at least in California, on self examination and the personal journey and the journey towards happiness. But it's like you're only allowed to come up with one answer. You're not really allowed to come up with the answer, well, actually, I feel kind of average or not that good or, you know, a bit pissed mm-hmm. off. You know, you ca- there is this both this kind of pressure to kind of examine every part of your psyche and this sort of also this pressure to, come up with some really really great results
0: yeah so you you spend uh some time in various subcultures of happiness cultivation yeah i guess you could say and and um you know they have some things in common there are some recurring themes in some ways they're very different uh why don't we go and uh start at least in the order you take them in the book early on you talk about kind of Buddhism meditation. And I should profess I wrote a whole book. Uh I'm I'm kind of an advocate of uh uh mindfulness meditation, although I have yeah. reservations about certain manifestations of it, but um yeah. I, I'm not an
1: unbiased uh no, it's a really interesting conversation to have. And, and you know, I think there is a conversation. Yes. Yeah, so as you said, you know, in the book, I went and did all of these various different, you know, so there's this kind of gonzo element to it where I try out different types of self-help programs. And I spend time in different subcultures, as you say. And yeah, I did. Um, so the the um, one of the early chapters of the book is about this kind of emphasis on, um isolation when it comes to happiness here and this idea that happiness is this kind of journey of the self that you basically pursue alone and there's a lot of data to support it that americans really have quite a different um attitude towards happiness when it comes to community versus the individual and so the idea is that it's this kind of personal journey that you kind of look deep inside yourself and i think this kind of push towards eastern um spirituality eastern traditions has kind of been rolled into this American self-help machine, if that makes sense. So I think a lot of the mindfulness that you see, say in Silicon Valley or in California, is maybe not quite what you would see, you know, in, um, you know, Buddhist cultures as such.
0: No. Well, in a number of senses, I mean, first of all, most lay people in Asia, most Buddhist lay people don't meditate. There there are some parts of Asia where that happens more than others, but by and large, they don't. The, the emphasis on meditation is is way, um, I mean, just statistically disproportionate in America. I mean, the other thing I'd say is there's a difference between Silicon Valley mindfulness culture, which, yeah, as absolutely. you know, because you went to the Wisdom 2.0 thing yeah. there is has become very interwoven. And, and we'll get to this whole question of like the interweaving of the quest for happiness with your vocation and, and the way some companies want to like emphasize that and so on but on right, the east coast yeah sorry go ahead
1: no I, I was just gonna you know to to emphasize what you said you know it's this idea of productivity and that happiness right. and enlightenment is somehow tied up in your performance at work
0: right and on the east coast see mindfulness meditation it's like it's funny how buddhism came to america zen came to the west coast earliest probably and in, in, i mean in the 20th century then mindfulness kind of came to the east coast, and. Tibetan kind of came to Colorado, but anyway, um, where, where I've done my retreats is at one of the, the really uh, you know kind of the first big beachhead of, and in, in, well, one of the first big beachheads at the Insight Meditation Society. Um, and I'd say a couple of things, uh, and I won't spend much time defending <laughs> mindfulness <laughs> meditation. I would say I don't think the reason to go into it is to become happier. I mean, that's a fine motivation, and I've said, however, you get it into it is fine. But I, I think the the thing that what should be the strongest selling point is that it helps you see the world more clearly. I mean, that's the claim of Buddhism. Right. And uh, that's how I would try to sell it. But the other thing I'd say is that in East coast Buddhist culture, you would hear a lot of cynicism about Silicon Valley mindfulness culture
1: i'm sure yeah absolutely and you know this isn't one thing that we're talking about this is a mm. rich and complex tradition of course but i think that the way in which mindfulness you know became this huge buzzword and really did get kind of rolled into this um self-help mindset i think was quite telling and it Take on this very American flavor and this very like heavy productivity flavor. That if you can just think the right thoughts and think in the right way, then you know you can either be happier or more productive, or ideally both. You know, and I think mm-hmm. that was the way that a lot of um, it was sold. And you
0: dabbled a little in 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 it. How did how did that go? What was the what was the context? And
1: so, well, I went to um, I, I tried out various types of mindfulness. Um, Uh, meditation actually and mindfulness techniques and i also i think i wrote about in the book i went to a buddhist um temple here and um took some meditation classes and i've got to say it didn't really speak to me in it it i didn't respond well to it and i know that a lot of people do and a lot of people find it extremely helpful for various reasons and i have gotta say i didn't respond to it either as a kind of effective way of controlling my anxiety or my um mind or my thoughts you know which i think is how a lot of people see it and also philosophically i didn't really respond to it that well either if that makes yeah.
0: sense i'll give you my final sermon on mindfulness which i give to everybody is is um i i personally would I, I never responded to it either in 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 those kinds of contexts i had to do a one week retreat, totally silent retreat before i saw it as anything other really than a waste of time um And even after two solid days of meditating, I still was hating it. So I'm a a hard (laughs) case. I'm a hard case. You may be a hard case. There are people who take to it right away, and God bless them. But what is it it about the um, philosophy you didn't cut into?
1: I think a couple of things. I mean, I think one of the problems, and this isn't necessarily about mindfulness itself, but I think it's just about the way that it's sold and practiced um, in certain ways in America at the moment is you know this emphasis on um isolation and silence you know that you're sitting everybody's having their own private internal experience whereas I Mm -hmm. think in years gone by spirituality was very much a communal thing and I think one of the main messages of my book America the Anxious is that all of the data I mean there's such such strong um Uh, research to support this that the single most important thing you can do for your well-being both your physical and mental well-being is to have strong community and so I think this very heavy emphasis on this kind of personal isolated journey where you're you know essentially going it alone even if you are in a room with other people you're doing it very privately and silently or on your kind of app on your cell phone or whatever I think that runs counter to a lot of what we know about human well-being. Mm -hmm. So that was one part of it. And then philosophically, I think this is something that I've seen you write about a lot. And I've really thought about it in detail, but it's about the role of stories in our Mm. minds. And what, you know, you've talked a lot about, you know, that we have a lot of stories which are kind of false or illusory that we um, tell ourselves, you know, and the ways in which we explain the world, which don't really exist. You know, they're kind of an illusion and that this is getting in the way of our well-being and our mental health. And I think that's definitely a possibility. I think it's definitely a possibility that um stories can be damaging to us. But I also think that stories, at least to me, are exactly what makes life worth living. So, you know, I love stories. Stories are everything, stories are about what um human society was founded on and stories are about how we make sense of our own lives and what makes them interesting. So I kind of don't I think it's sort of about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if they have that expression here in the US. Yeah, States. I mean
0: I guess I'd say two things. One is that, yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, according to, I mean, according to kind of a more or less mainstream, I guess, interpretation of Buddhist philosophy, all stories are almost, in a sense, arbitrary or false, or or, or they involve interpretation of the bare facts of reality. and, and, And so you should be equally suspicious of all of them. On the other hand, as a kind of a therapeutic matter, in other words, in terms of how people actually use mindfulness, it's yeah. the problematic stories they try to, they usually try to detach themselves from a little, which makes sense. You know, it's like, right.
1: of course. Yeah. Like
0: I'm a terrible person, uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, yeah.
1: And so there's definitely um, utility in it for sure. Um, it's just, I think the idea of a life without stories just seems so bleak to me that yeah. I, don't, I don't want to aspire to that. You know, I think there's a, a sort of aspiration to a kind of detachment in a way within Buddhism. Um, which to me doesn't feel aspirational. I don't want to be behind the waterfall. I gonna wanna be in the waterfall, if that makes sense. I guess I would never waterfall. thought of it that no. way.
0: But but have you ever been behind a waterfall? It's cool.
1: <laughs> That's true. I haven't actually. I haven't. <laughs> you should and I try probably wouldn't think being in a waterfall, it'd probably be <laughs> horrific. So yeah. Um Um yeah, I, I no,
0: I take your um I take your point. And it's true that I mean, if you talk about actually trying to approach true enlightenment in the idealized sense of, of, you know, bliss, utter clarity, and a certain kind of detachment or non-attachment, um, that would involve letting go of all stories. and, And, um, as a practical matter, you don't have to worry about that because you're not going to get there unless you're like an <laughs> yeah. extremely unusual person. But uh, but 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 it's a it's a point well taken, and and of course, one criticism of of or one question raised about that is does that lead to nihilism? You don't care about anything, and there's all that. Yeah. It, as a practical matter, it's not yeah um, that big a deal. So you didn't get <laughs> sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say that. Having said that, um, about you know, m- mindfulness was never something that really spoke to me at all, and I've written about kind of my objections to it and i've also sort of written a bit about how kind of being in the moment often to me is like the least interesting part of human thought you know that the imagination the abstract the future hope um you know reminiscence Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things are sort of more compelling to me really than the actual Mm -hmm. moment you know it's the stories we tell around the moment which makes the moment interesting so i've sort of written about that in the past but having said that, in, and I don't know if you want to go there yet, but you know, in this particular moment of like mass high anxiety in the middle of a pandemic, I have found mindfulness and being in the moment to be a useful technique. And I've talked about that in therapy a bit as well. So, um, you know, I don't want to write it off altogether. In, in
0: what way have you, has, why don't you elaborate on that, on that in this context of the pandemic? Of
1: the pandemic. Yeah. So, um, so I've been doing some tele therapy, um, for anxiety since, um, since this, well, I I was seeing a therapist before in real life, but in, I've been doing it over the um, video conferencing since the pandemic. And um, I think, you know, I was kind of spinning out, you know, just in... Huge anxiety, and you know, and what if, and what if, and my mom's there in London and she's compromised, mm-hmm. you know, her chest is compromised, and then no one will be able to get to her, and she's going to die, and there's going to be no funeral because no one's going to be able to get to her, and she's going to not have a ventilator, and da, da da da, and then, you know, and just spinning off on this massive anxiety. And I think what my therapist was really good at doing was just kind of grounding me back into the moment and saying, you know, you can't know these things, you know. Sorry, there's a plane flying overhead. I don't know if this is going to of ruin.
0: Uh, it's not a problem.
1: You can't hear it Okay. Um, yeah, I think um, I'll just start that again. But uh, what um, that my therapist has been saying, which has been really helpful, is just kind of bringing me back to the, the present moment and just saying, you know, this is all you can be in now. This is all you can know. And
0: is, is your therapist in the in the cognitive behavioral therapy tradition?
1: He's not, um, hmm. but I think he maybe draws on some of those things. And I have actually done cognitive behavioral therapy in the past, and I have found it quite useful.
0: Because that has a certain amount in common with mindfulness. I mean, as yeah. you're suggesting now, yeah. because that is a, um yeah, the, uh before we get back to the pandemic, the one, the one, my final sales pitch is like being in the moment. I mean, I'm basically by disposition completely with you on all of this. <laughs> I'm not like <laughs> the kind of person to be defending meditation or Buddhism, but but Sometimes. the thing about being on a retreat is it did give me for the first time the feeling of like, total immersion in the moment and my immediate surroundings and it was you know kind of a deep kind of aesthetic experience and appreciation of it all you know borderline blissful and i was just totally devoid of anxiety and worry and felt that i actually had a more objective view of a lot of things and 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 it's those are the kind of moments that hook you but again i had tried i had done what you've done and you know tried gone to sessions even day-long things and so on, and, and uh, it's not an easy place for me to get to. Um, I
1: always kind of wonder how how long to keep going, because I remember I, I had this friend once who said that he hated the movie Blade Runner the first six times he saw it, and then on the seventh time he really <laughs> loved it. I was like, who's going to watch a movie seven times that they don't like? So, you know, I do agree that so many people have seemed to get so much from it that maybe it is something that I should give more of a go-to.
0: Yeah, but I wouldn't say keep do do these do what you've been doing six times. I'd say either go to a a, a, a week long retreat or, or give mm-hmm. up. But anyway, so on the yeah on the pandemic, um, yeah it's it's it's. I was thinking about this that like um, like what is the mindful view of the pandemic, uh, and in a way, um, it's just kind of an objective view. I mean it's it's just very easy to lose perspective. It's an odd it's an odd thing because in objective terms it's not highly threatening to that many of us. It kind of is to me given my age and where I am physically, it's like not nothing. I'm 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 pretty close to New York. I'm I you know, I'm a slightly slightly elevated risk demographic, but the thing is I, I don't have very much objective reason to worry about my daughters, even though they're in New York, just because the numbers on how likely, you know,
1: right, yeah, and so
0: on. And it's it's a strange. I, I mean, do you have did you, when you examine your actual worries, do you find that they have no objective basis or just little objective basis? I mean, presumably, you're you're if if you have older relatives, they're not they're um, are they uh, exposed or.
1: Well, my mom is in London and she is, uh, has a history of, um, lung problems I and see. pneumonia. So I think that that worry is a genuine worry. Um, and so yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, I spent, you know, on a personal level, I spend very, you know, I can really veer wildly between this, like, paralyzing anxiety. You know, I read some article in the New York Times. They seem to have a lot of them at the moment, which are all, you know, terrible stories of young people you know um having terrible experiences with this and so i'll read one of those and it'll kind of knock me out for a few hours and then and then i'll kind of step back and get a bit of perspective but i think there's a there's sort of a difference between personal anxiety when you're locked up in your basement on your own self-isolating that is not really effective and it's not really doing anything and a kind of public health anxiety which i think is justified
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know
1: to make sure that you do the right things to to flatten yeah. the
0: curve. Well, concern for humankind is certainly in order here. Um, right. Absolutely. The um, so uh, you, I, I think right after you described the meditation stuff, you you talk about the landmark. Uh, is it the oh, landmark yeah. Foundation?
1: So this is an course.
0: interesting story. I didn't realize that this is what became of Est. Yeah. Can you can yeah. you tell us about Est and? What yeah. it was in Warner Earhart and, and what that was and then what it's yeah. morphed into and then how you you visited the, the current manifestation and
1: yeah. So Est was this program in the seventies, um, run by this guy, Werner Earhart, um or Werner, I guess his first name is pronounced. And um it was it's a, ve- it was a very extreme program. A lot of celebrities and high profile people took it. And you were basically kind of locked in a hotel, conference room, or ballroom for Three or four days, these extremely long days, we were kind of deprived of food and water, and you weren 't allowed to use the bathroom and people were vomiting and soiling themselves and and they would like go very deep into your psyche and you know um, try to um, it had Buddhist elements to it, and it had some sort of self help elements and it had all kinds of and it was very extreme it was a very kind of experiential program and this thing um, in its, in, I'm not sure of the exact timing, but I think in the late eighties and nineties morphed into the landmark forum, which is a very sort of sanitized corporate version of the old S programs. It has a lot of the same content and a lot of the same features. Like you're, it's very long days. You're kind of, you're kind of broken down. You're in a large group. You, you know, they they try and go very deep into your, into your problems. And they try and convince you that your problems are basically your own responsibility your own fault and you can't blame anybody else for your problems and they do a lot of work on this storytelling thing which is like Mm -hmm. you are telling stories about your own life which are unhelpful and to get rid of it it's a very extreme experience i did it um and i wrote about it and um i'm careful because the landmark from are extremely litigious organizations but um it's uh it is a very very extreme thing to go through um, not as extreme as it used to be in S but you know lots of corporations send their um, staff on this thing so you would think that it would be kind of very uh, sort of sanitized and flat and all the rest of it but it really isn't it as as an experience to go through it's quite um mm-hmm. punishing
0: yeah you describe a scene nice. where they where they um they have uh they bring uh, like a member uh, one of the people one of your peers who has also yeah. signed up for it up to the front And they they say, tell us these facts about yourself. And then the teacher either confirms that they are facts or puts them in this zone of like, no, that's not a factual reality.
1: Yes. So they have this um, thing on the whiteboard where it's kind of like story or fact. I can't remember the exact terminology that they use, but so, so somebody would get up and they would say, you know, I was born in Poland and they would say, okay, that's a fact. And then they would say, "Uh, my parents, Uh, I think she said, my parents abandoned me. And that's like, nope story, you know, because abandoned, you know, it's also loaded. It's a story. And so that's the story she's telling about her own life. So uh, all you can say is, you know, my mother left me in a basket outside the, whatever, you know, that would perhaps be a fact, but Mm -hmm. you know, and it's this idea of breaking it down and the tone is very, very aggressive. So it's kind of, it's this real like emotional workout and she's kind of yelling at you and, and um, you know,
0: and and that that is a carryover from Est, right? That yes, kind of yes. harsh yeah. uh, like quit whining and take charge.
1: Yes. And it, you know, and it's this idea, it's it all sort of boils down to this idea that it's all your own personal responsibility. That everything mm-hmm. that you think and do and all of your problems are your responsibility. And they don't use the word fault, but basically that's sort of where it's the, the kind of um feeling that you end up with from it and i think there's a real tone of victim blaming in it and a real um i mean i don't know what uh exactly what um the mental health community would think of this program and it probably views differ but it's it, you know it takes quite vulnerable people and they yell at them in a trapped in a room for days on end. I mean, and the days are very long. You're kind of physically exhausted, mentally exhausted. It's, it's got a slightly, I don't want to use the word cult-like, but it, there's something sort of, you know, happening at a very kind of physical, vulnerable level, I think. Now.
0: Yeah, I was surprised that people stick around for it based on your <laughs> description of. but they pay good money to be oh, subjected pay, in this and, room. And
1: it's also got this kind of pyramid selling element to it so every you know couple of hours they bring out that you know sign your friends and family up and sign up for the next class and this one's six hundred dollars but if you take the next one that's eight hundred dollars and then you know and this one's a longer one and then you can train to be a leader and it sort of has this um extreme selling element to it all the way uh-huh. through
0: yeah i was struck by how different, by by how different um, subcultures that you went into could, on the one hand, have similar principles at their core, but be so different because a landmark in a way they're doing what the mindfulness is partly about, which is right. to say, no, that's just a story, that's not an, an objective fact. But the 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 sensibility is so different. I mean, these right. at these, at these meditation yeah. or retreats, yeah. it's all about. I mean, well, it's just common for teachers to be the kind of, don't be too hard on yourself. Don't right. blame yourself. Like yeah. like self-blame is one of the big stories that you seem to be encouraged to let go of. And that's not like, this isn't something you find in Buddhist scripture, by the way, it's just uh, part of the modern culture because of kind of American mindfulness, at least as I've encountered it. Um, and so you have the same idea in a way, but with an the opposite kind of valence put right. on. Right.
1: I think that's interesting. But I also do, I have noticed this kind of, so Landmark, Landmark Forum is definitely a very extreme example when it comes to the tone and the yelling and the, you know, sleep deprivation and that kind of thing. But um, that sort of steely thread of, you know, it's your responsibility, it's mm-hmm. your fault, it's something very embedded in the American self help. Machine yeah. philosophy, and you see it everything from Tony Robbins to, and I think you do see it in mindfulness meditation. Actually, um, maybe not at its best, but I think there is a you know the positive thinking movement. Oprah is huge on this. You know, this take responsibility for yourself, quit whining. Um, well, and it, I think
0: yeah, no, there's a kind of austerity to serious meditation for sure. It's yeah. like uh, you know, yeah. you're, uh, you it is you're supposed to learn how to endure. And have equanimity in any circumstances that's true it's it's yeah,
1: and I think sometimes that kind of mentality, this very um individualistic you know it's on you, it's your fault, you're doing it wrong. I think that can be a really problematic message, and this is one of the, th- the conclusions I came to in the book in America the anxious that I think partly I think it emphasizes this idea of individualism in happiness, which runs counter to the research about community and social connectedness and interconnectedness and i think it also really is it's this kind of neoliberalism of the emotions if that makes sense it's this very individualistic tone and it kind of really lets systems and social justice and those kinds of ideas off the hook a bit you know it you can often say well you know you see these memes they sort of say your happiness is a choice and take responsibility for your own happiness and it's kind of this constant denial that your circumstances could have anything to do with your happiness or that you know you could just be responding to being in a bad situation so it's not the fact that there's race discrimination or gender discrimination or any of these types of things or you know or poverty or you know poor wages or um high rents or these kinds of things it's you it's all on you you although that's another case where these things can assume different valence in
0: different contexts i mean at these retreats these meditation retreats you all you have to do is look at the bumper stickers on the cars and you know these are not anti-social justice people. These are, it's like, it's a very strong ideological kind of pattern here. Um,
1: it's interesting that, because I think I see that as well. And like when I went, I, one of the other things I reported on in the book was uh, the Wisdom 2.0 conference, which right. is, it's kind of got an element of parody about it. And it's this um, Silicon Valley mindfulness conference and, you know, a lot of extremely wealthy people, you know, exploring their own spirituality. And on the face of it, there's a lot of discussion of social justice, you know, that, you know, they mention it a lot and it comes up. But I think some of the key messages are sort of, working against it as well so there's this tension there
0: yeah um by the way did did est uh was one of its um was there a lot of est action at esalen do you know have you ever been to esalen in california
1: i haven't been i know about it Uh, i I don't know actually whether est had a presence at esalen i think they
0: actually did the
1: same sort of time period and yeah but um i mean a lot
0: of stuff happened at esalen so but anyway, speaking of kind of wisdom 2.0 and the Silicon Valley uh, version of mindfulness. Yeah. I mean, there is uh, one thing that some of your book is about is uh, not just, I mean, maybe you could distinguish kind of bottom up and top down in the sense that on the one hand, there's individual people looking for happiness and trying to find it. Mm-hmm. But there's the top down thing of like companies and corporations and yeah. employers Oh yeah. Trying to work the quest for happiness into their own hopes about what their workers will do. And um I mean, first of all, Silicon Valley Mindfulness is a famous
1: well, yeah,
0: I I would you would you call it a version of that? I mean, um I
1: think so. Yeah. I think it's all part of the same kind of mindset at least, or it's a sort of branch of the same thing. But yeah, I mean the corporate happiness um industry and model is is become a huge trend I mean you see it in all these big companies where they literally send their staff on um happiness courses or mindfulness courses or spirituality courses and it's this kind of real blurring of the lines between work and self you know what really is your employer's business here and some of it is seems relatively harmless you know they just kind of go on a day-long course and jump around a bit and get some positive thinking messages and some of it feels quite sinister and I think there's a problem here in in the sense as well of you know we talk about letting systems off the hook I think a lot you see in corporate America this idea that you know your employer is giving you mindfulness training instead of healthcare benefits or instead of vacation or instead Mm -hmm. of you know so it's not like you know, and there's there's sort of a correlation which I talked about in the book between the companies that do the, the most of this kind of happiness stuff and the ones with the worst records when it comes to actually looking after their staff and things like uh, union presence or um, you know good benefits, good good vacation policies, that sorts of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, the most um, I guess the the clearest example of this in your book, I mean, the intersection of kind of corporate interest and and, uh, the aspiration of self-help is this, uh, this thing in Las Vegas, which I had no idea. Oh, I had yeah. never heard of this. This is, this isn't super famous, is it? I mean, it sounds like right. it should it's be. It's
1: amazing how little publicity it really got, but yeah. So what happened was, um, I don't know if you've heard of the shoe store um, Zappos. It's an yeah, online- it's pretty,
0: pretty famous. Pretty woman,
1: Yeah. And so the, the CEO of Zappos is a man called Tony Shay, um, who, was very, very influenced by sort of happiness, um, philosophy, positive psychology, all of these types of things. And he brought it very much so um, to his company. And I, in the book, I visit Zappos, and it's this kind of crazy place which is full of stuffed llamas and ball pits and parades and funny hats and, and some, also some sort of slightly sinister stuff as well. Um, anyway, so this guy, um, who was hugely influenced by all of this and had done it um, to great success in his own company, Brought up this huge area of. Can I, can I just
0: interrupt? When you say he 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 done it with great success, you mean he had yeah. convinced his employees that by yeah. being the, the best way to be happy was to be good employees, or or they want they were supposed to make the customers happy, or.
1: Well, both, actually. I, mean, yeah. I think it's this idea that your, your life is totally bound up in your work. So they get people, they employ people right from the beginning on this idea of cultural fit. And cultural fit in this context means somebody who loves wearing a, a wig and, uh, you know, jumping around and having a parade and, and jumping in the ball pit with the stuffed llamas. Kind of my idea of hell, but, you know, some people's idea of...
0: You're not, like, a, stu- you're not a stuffed llama person?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe it's like mindfulness meditation. I just need to do it seven times and then uh, and then I'll see. <laughs>
0: might, might take more than seven. but
1: <laughs> Seven llamas. Um, yeah, and so this idea that, you know, your work is fun and that you, it's all banned and you have to socialize with your workmates all the time and, you know, this real culture of extreme positivity in the workplace. And he took these founding principles of the of you know positive psychology of his kind of happiness model, and he worked as a consultant for a while. I think bringing this to other companies, and then he basically bought up I can't remember how many acres, but you know a fair amount of land in downtown Las Vegas, which was this kind of really deserted, downtrodden area, with this idea of turning it into a. Happiness community where everything would be integrated. So, the big dream was that you know, he, he bought all the businesses, he bought all the land, he bought all the um, uh, you know, the housing, all the rest of it. So, so the-
0: this is right right in actual downtown Las Vegas because yeah. that used yeah, not- last time I was in Las Vegas, it was clear that the action was moving from the downtown casinos to the strip. But I gather yeah. that by the time he bought it up, downtown had just completely died. Had they had yeah, they like
1: derelict, yeah? So, yeah. I mean, there were a few really seedy kind of casinos that were still right. kind of trotting along but it was yeah it was this basically very seedy derelict area um that he brought up and um he tried to run as a happiness community so he brought in he tried to bring in entrepreneurs from all over the country to kind of move to this place and live in this kind of semi-communal way um to, to greater or lesser of Degrees, But, you know, people were living in this kind of communal
0: housing. So did they, uh, like an entrepreneur would come with his or her employees? I mean, they would locate the the staff there or what?
1: So he was kind of providing venture capital for these um, people to come and start their businesses there. So they didn't really bring, I I think there probably were companies like that where they kind of moved Mm -hmm. the whole thing. But it was more people to come and start up businesses there. And he would give them money to do that. Um, and he lived in a trailer in this trailer park, you know, this billionaire living in this trailer in the in this trailer park and uh, right in the middle of downtown. And they would have these parties and festivals and and they had this weird kind of surveillance thing where um I, I think this kind of died after a, a short while, but they were trying to sort of track people on their cell phones in this thing to see how many um, interactions they were having with with other people in this community and trying to kind of flop it, yeah, collisions that was it, yeah, so they called them collisions, and a collision was any time that you kind of interacted and they, The idea was that they would keep making routes around the city as difficult as possible, so that people would have to take different routes to work that then they would bump into more people and have more collisions and Gathering detente. So there was this slight civil liberties aspect to it, which was slightly scabey as well. Mm. Um, and it was a very, I, I went there in the book and it was kind of, um, it was a very strange place. And also what started to happen was that, um, you know, and I talked to, I interviewed a lot of people there and I um, talked to a therapist who worked there and, you know, some mental health professionals. And what started to happen was that there was this um, suicide cluster a number of people in this community committed suicide um, within quite a short space of time. Mm. And, you know, obviously with suicide and suicide clusters, you know, there's always a number of different factors, but I think what people were saying and the kinds of conversations I was having with these mental health professionals and with people involved was sort of that there was something about the pressure cooker atmosphere of this place where everyone was trying to be so, you know, so happy all the time. And the whole purpose, you know, and the pressure to look happy as well as be happy Mm. and, presenters happy was too much for people it also
0: seems strange to locate that in a place with so much available vice you know right right? i mean like you can fall down any number of traps in las vegas if you're not careful
1: Right, that's so true, yeah. And so it can all go horribly wrong very quickly. Uh,
0: yeah. So is is that still running? Is it still a going thing? And would he still say it's working or what?
1: Do you know what? It's interesting because this, I when I visited there, I guess it was 2015, and I haven't updated it since. It'd be interesting to, to know. Um, I think it's still going nominally. I don't think it ever took off in the way that he wanted. I think they got a huge amount of bad press from the – Suicide thing. Obviously that's not great publicity for your happiness no. community if everyone starts killing themselves. No. Um so um but I don't know what the current status is.
0: Hmm. Um so uh let's um let's let I, I briefly want to want to get into attachment parenting. You've <laughs> actually actually unknowingly you've stumbled onto another uh, hobby horse of mine in, in uh in criticizing attachment parenting. I actually didn't realize I was doing it, but it is what we did in retrospect. There, there wasn't a name for it, but I wrote one of my proudest moments in journalism. I wrote perhaps the classic defense mm-hmm. of, sleep, of of sleeping with your kids. You know, you're having your baby sleep in your bed. Mm-hmm. It's uh, called Go Ahead, Sleep With Your Kids or something like that. It was in Slate. It was reprinted in Time. It even got denounced by that uh, guy Ferber. Do you know the, the Dr. Ferber? Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Uh, of Ferberizing yeah. fame? Yeah who, who yeah. was an advocate of separating uh, your, you know, he, he said uh, separating your baby from you and, and disciplining them like, like enduring their crying until they just quit crying and they'll learn. Right. It was like,
1: like 10 minutes here, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. Yeah, ten yeah. minutes yeah. So
0: anyway, so, so I should uh, own up to that bias, but um you will tell, tell us your, 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 and, and then I later learned that attachment parenting was this term for, that kind of thing. And also just, I guess, spending a lot of time with, mothers spending a lot of time with kids and I, and I don't know what all it entails, but anyway, tell uh, you, you get into this. Tell us about the
1: Right. So I have um, three children and, um, you know, it's interesting. So there's a lot, there's a lot to say on this. So um, in the book, I I noticed that when we moved here, you know, I had a one-year-old at that time. And in the UK at that time, the, the kind of prevailing parenting kind of culture was very much about schedules and routines and do this at this time. And there was this book that everybody bought, which was just absolutely crazy. It was like living in North Korea or something, you know. you what, what was the
0: book? Do you remember?
1: It was called The Contented Little Baby Book by uh, Gina Ford. Hmm. And... Um, It's so rigid. I mean, you read this thing and it's like, I remember being pregnant and reading this thing and thinking, oh my God, my life is over. I mean, it was like 701, eat a banana, 702, (laughs) you know, feed your baby a small, whatever, and apply cream to your baby at 710. So regimented. But anyway, this was kind of the norm. And I think that softened up in the UK as well, but this was the the norm. And then we Isn't
0: that a little bit of a long standing, at least in the upper class? I mean, there's a lot of sending kids to prep away to prep school in Britain, right? And, and and, and, where they, where they, you know, where they teach discipline. I mean, historically, at least
1: yes and still you know in the upper classes kids still go to uh off to boarding school as young as six or seven and you know, that's horrifically emotionally damaging i I have a six-year-old now and the thought of sending him off to boarding school i mean it would i say this you know with complete confidence it would utterly destroy his life there's just no two ways about it um and mine you know but um yeah anyway well we moved to berkeley california which was like the absolute pendulum swing the other way so it Mm -hmm. was um you know you wear your baby you know baby wearing and you carry your baby until they're you know 40 pounds and there's all these mothers looking exhausted and like back breaking you know walking around with their toddlers and and you breastfeed until they're four and you um can never leave them to cry for a moment and respond to everything all the time and it was this very very intense swing the other way. And I think both of those are quite um absolutist ideas on how you know a, a child is just a human being and I don't think you really need either extreme of those. And I think people get with in parenting in particular I think there's this idea in American culture whether or not people subscribe to attachment parenting but this sort of relatively modern idea is that like the parent's job to kind of build this perfectly happy child and that you can like this very very fevered effort you can create a perfectly happy child so long as you follow this method absolutely and rigidly you know whether that's the attachment parenting or the schedule or the this or the that and i think it's just this very fevered intense climate so whether that is so i'm certainly not against people wearing their babies in slings or um sleeping with them at all and i have slept co-slept with all of my children at different times Mm -hmm. But I think there's something about this very, very absolutist and very dogmatic approach to parenting and this very, very intense and hovering approach, which I think is not really healthy for parents or kids.
0: Yeah, well, actually, when I wrote the piece defending it, I was kind of saying the same thing. I wasn't advocating it for everyone. It's just that at that point, this is in the 1990s, ferberizing was the standard thing for people thing. in our demographic and you were frowned on if you did it was like you're you're harming your child. And I looked into it and realized Ferber had zero data showing that it's good or bad to do any one thing and nobody had good data. And all I knew for sure was that until very recently in human history, people had always slept with their kids. Is, right, really. and, it, and I just wondered how bad could it be? So I was just, it was just a plea for tolerance really. Was, right. Was, and uh, I think
1: that we're saying the exact same thing because I think then the pendulum swung so much the other way that it was yeah. like, if you left your kid to cry for five seconds while you went to the bathroom, huh. then you your kid would be damaged irrevocably for life. And so I think, you know, it's just about, injecting a little bit of common sense and you know funnily enough I have my so I have three children all boys and my first two I parented them in completely different ways because um uh my um uh oldest I did do quite a lot of the routine stuff just because it was in the culture and my youngest one we were there in Berkeley and I kind of went along with what was happening and he was kind of an attachment baby and so um you know he slept with us and I breastfed him much longer and all the rest of it and I mean, they're different people. Who knows? It's a study of two. So I don't know what mm-hmm. the um, outcome is, but, you know, I've kind of tried both. But I think they can both become quite guilt mongering and difficult.
0: So is the connection of the attachment parenting to the kind of larger theme of the book that I mean, this is an inset- obsession with inculcating with building a happy child or yeah. is, uh, is...
1: I think so. I think it's this idea that we have a lot of control over the process of parenting and Mm -hmm. that, and it's the same as the self-help mentality. It's just kind of applying it to children rather than ourselves, which is that it's all about effort. You know, it's this idea that, you know, if you work really, 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 really hard at this and doing everything exactly right and follow this method and this thing, then you will get the outcome you want. And I think just this very idea of control and that level of control and sort of micromanaging either your own happiness or your child's happiness is very stressful we don't have control
0: as we think we do well i would certainly say in the realm of parenting uh having now done it with two kids it's a complete mystery to me what what you should do i mean i mean i'm i'm totally happy with the way they turned out but i just have no idea what what would have been different if i had done things differently in various ways or why they're the way they are because you know they're 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 quite different in, in in many respects yeah um even though they they both grew up in the same place, uh,
1: right? And same with same with my kids, they're very three very different people. So, who knows? In
0: fact, I think the literature shows that um, to any two siblings are almost as different in terms of personality as just two randomly selected people.
1: Really, that's fascinating. yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's,
0: it's striking. Yeah. And one reason is the environment they have actually isn't shared. I mean, they're they're different. Like one is the older sibling. One is the younger sibling. That's right. different.
1: And those are very different dynamics.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you get into uh Mormons a little, which is my, my, it's funny. My only, I mean, I've had two kinds of contact with Mormons. One is them knocking on, on the door in this very neighborhood and me feeling just real compassion for these young earnest guys who thought, they had a prayer of converting anyone in this neighborhood to Mormonism. I just I just wanted to explain to them what zip code they were in. But anyway, I, I didn't I didn't do that. But the other thing is um in the Salt Lake City airport, just like changing planes, you run into a lot of happy people. Yes. Happy seeming people. And and I I was wondering, is it like they're just acting happy? So I'll say, "Why are you so happy?" And they'll say, "Funny you should ask."
1: <laughs> it is, yeah.
0: <laughs> what, what? So, yeah, what is your re- take on on Mormon happiness?
1: Well, this was the reason why I went to spend time. So I spent time uh, with a Mormon family in Salt Lake City, and um and looked at that culture. And the reason why I chose Mormons to look at is that the data will shows that. um a religious people are happier in general on average than non-religious people and then when it comes to religious people mormons are the happiest of all the religions so um so i kind of wanted to know why and so i went to spend time there and i think one piece of it and i think for sure one very strong piece of why mormons report as happier is because there is a pressure on them to be happy and that's part of the religious um culture and doctrine so i think If a pollster calls from, you know, Gallup or whatever and says, how happy are you? They're probably more likely to say that they're happy. Mm -hmm. So I think that is one piece of it. But I think there is also a genuine thing that Mormons have a very, very strong sense of community and helping each other and helping each other out. And it's at a very informal level and at a very formal level. So the church has its own kind of... um, very complex and detailed kind of welfare state that exists so that if you lose your job or whatever the church will provide for you they'll give you clothes they'll give you a job they'll give you food so you feel very protected and there's also this kind of informal network where everybody's always or certainly when I was there um you know knocking on each other's doors and bringing cookies and hanging out and doing church and you know which is what we were talking about before when we talked about you know um the whole sort of isolation thing of meditation and, um, that tradition, you know, but this is very much a community-based tradition. Mm-hmm. So I think that has a big piece of it, but then there's also data to show that, um, people in, um, Mormon communities also have the highest rate of antidepressant use in the United States. So maybe that's why they're so happy. You know, I yeah. Think
0: it's- maybe it's a tribute to the power of antidepressants. Um, now right. it is, I gather, um, people i think isn't the finding that uh people in religious communities are happier than average but that seems to be not because of the religious belief per se yes. but rather yes. the communal part of the living
1: yes. yes so when they control for that in studies it's definitely found that it's the social support rather than the spiritual belief that's the key factor there
0: mm-hmm. okay um so and 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 this is i mean as you've suggested this is one of the big, um, well, it's it's one of the big take homes of the happiness research. And also, in your view, one of the reasons we shouldn't make this more complicated than it is, which is that social, the social dimension of mm-hmm. your life is a very important determinant yeah. of happiness, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And of physical health as well. I was surprised that like low social connection has a risk of death um, similar to the risk of smoking. You know, people who are lonely um, and it's about twice as dangerous to your health to be lonely as it is to be obese. So, you know, we put so much emphasis on, you know, going to the gym, dieting, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, you know, social connection is more important to your health, mm-hmm. your physical health, as not just your mental health. Yeah. So, I mean, happiness research is weird. And, you know, I read a lot of studies, you know, there's been 64,000 studies published into, you know, human happiness and what makes people happy and they're all incredibly inconsistent. So, you know, you can find a study saying that pretty much anything is the key to happiness and also so is the exact opposite of that thing. So, you know, that there's a lot of inconsistency in the data, but the one thing that is like pretty much hundred percent consistent across the board is that the most important factor in our happiness is our social connections.
0: Mm-hmm. And, the 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 medium of socializing has changed, right? Uh, because more and more of it's online, and you look yeah. into this, you get into this whole Facebook effect.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think that socializing'm like yeah, I did a chapter all about um, social media, and um, I think social media sort of distorts a lot of the principles of socializing so I think there are um, definitely huge positives about online socializing and people can find communities in different ways and connect with lots of different types of people but I think it's something about the culture which we've collectively developed around using social media that has brings its own stresses there's no reason why it has to be that way, but you know this sort of It's like happiness is kind of the currency of social media. Like the whole point of the way that people interact on Instagram or Facebook or whatever is like, look how happy I am and look how great my life is. And that can cause a lot of anxiety in people. And there's no reason why it turned out like that. You know, we we could have just as easily. And actually I say in the book that, um, you know, when we first moved to America, you could blindfold me and read me the Facebook statuses of my friends. And I could tell you instantly whether it was a British person or an American person. Oh, really? Because the American ones, you know, were all, oh, feeling blessed, snuggled up with the cutest guy ever on the sofa, having the best day. My kids are amazing. My life, you know, it was all like, it sort of had the tone of the Oscars, you know, this kind of Oscars acceptance speech kind of thing. And the British ones were all like, I'm waiting for a bus in the rain and it's rubbish <laughs> and I, like, you know, that kind of thing. Like, well, this part, really... of part of that is
0: just that it's always raining in Britain or at least it's no, always grey, right?
1: That is true. It's not a fair comparison. But it, it's definitely something about the tone that was different. And um, But that's changed. It's almost like the kind of happiness, that kind of global tone of social media has spread to the UK. So now you just can't tell who's who at all.
0: Yeah. The um, So are you fine? There was a piece in the New York Times uh, by, I think, Kevin Roos, technology writer, saying one silver lining of the pandemic is that people are starting to use uh, – online technology in the way we had hoped for, for actual genuine connection. That's and really interesting. Yeah. Have you found that? I mean, I mean, how much self-isolating are you like you're in Berkeley. So yeah. are you, so you're basically staying in your, in your house, except for yeah. like taking walks and things.
1: Yes. So we are allowed to take walks and you're allowed to go to the grocery store and the pharmacy and that's it. Um, so absolutely. Technology has been a huge part of that. And, you know, and I think, it's changed the kind of mechanisms by which we interact and people, you know, I'm having like Skype dates with um, friends, you know, our drinks with friends after the kids are in bed and, you know, that, those kinds of things. So it's that sort of thing, which I never would have. You heard. actually have,
0: did you say you have drinks? Like you're both yeah, drinking? So we'll
1: have like, you know, we'll all have, we'll have a glass of wine in our own homes, but cool. over first time or skype or whatever mm-hmm. um and the kids are doing online classes and you know so there's definitely all of that and i think also people are being the the phenomenon that i just talked about where we talked about the kind of tone of social media which is like look how great my life is i mean it's kind of hard to maintain that in a middle of a pandemic you know so i think people are being <laughs> a little more honest you know sort of <laughs> like this life is great right now is it yeah. so um and if you do put on Facebook or on Instagram that your life is so perfect in the middle of this pandemic, you look like a bit of a jerk. So it's kind of, I think it, that is changing. And I think we'll see, you know, the longer this goes on, I think we'll see much more changes.
0: Yeah. So I guess final question is, I, I think you, you just alluded to this uh, just a couple of minutes ago, but um, ha- how different is Britain from America these days? I mean, I, I, I noticed the British title of the book is the pursuit of happiness or the title of the British edition, the pursuit yeah. of happiness why are we driving ourselves crazy and how can we stop? So presumably you think there are some British people who, or at least your publisher thinks yeah. there's some British people who, who, who uh, have some of the American disease. I mean, is it becoming more of like a global Western yeah, thing?
1: Without a doubt. I think the differences were much more stark when I first, we first arrived here. I think there was a very strong cultural difference between. And the
0: that was and when, what year?
1: Uh, 2011. Um, wow. So, Um, And I think it was really, you know, from the tone, from the, like, you know, I literally never heard the word mindfulness before we moved here. And then suddenly it's, you know, mindful childbirth and mindful butchering and mindful. Well, you
0: moved to the, one of the epicenters of mindfulness as it happens. I mean, in 2011, the craze hadn't really swept America fully, but Berkeley, it it was not hard to find it in Berkeley.
1: It was there. That's true. And I think, um, and that same with self-help, I think there's this like very natural skepticism in the British psyche, you know, in the British culture, you know, it's this idea people don't want to be too credulous. It's, it's like just, we've got a natural cynicism, I think about anybody trying to sell us something or anything, you know, and also this very kind of real, you know, deep realism, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, it's fine. You know, it's okay. Not bad. You know, that's the kind of general aspirational. Um, so, but in terms of self-help culture, yes, I think that the British are really embracing self-help culture in a way that they just didn't, you know, five Mm. years ago, even.
0: Well, my condolences to your, to your nation. (laughs) Thank you. um, well, thanks for taking the time. Now, is there, I mean, is there anything else you want to say about the book aside from buy it? Um, no, buy it. Thank you. Are you um, on Are you on Twitter? Is there a place online people should go uh, yeah, to you find you? Go,
1: my website is um, ruthwhitmanwith 2 pscom and I'm on Twitter at Ruth Whitman. Same on Instagram.
0: Okay. And I'm Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R on Twitter. And the name of the book is America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating. A Nation of Nervous Wrecks. Thank you for taking the time.
1: Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Good
0: luck weathering things in uh, Berkeley. Thank you, you too.